see this cross behind me? I was reminded as I watched Sydney be baptized last week and as I watched Ming and Lily be baptized the week before, how fitting it is that they were baptized into those waters just beneath the cross because baptism is all about Jesus. They were lowered into his death and brought back up into his life. And now their whole lives are shaped by and focused on Jesus and his cross. You know, symbols are powerful, symbols like the cross. Our creative director, Kevin Woods, designed a logo a couple years ago that actually won a national award. And it was a simple enough logo for our Villages ministry, which is our small group ministry for women at this church. Here's what it looks like. You see these four houses surrounding in the center a cross. And I love that this captures what's happening in the whole life of a Christian. You know, it's not just one part of your life, your church life that is focused on on Christ and his cross. It's every part of your life, from your work, to your hobbies, to your um, extracurriculars, to your community, to your small groups, all of them are focused on, centered on, and built on Jesus. Of course, in the logo, Kevin doesn't say Jesus, there's just a cross because the cross has the power to point beyond itself to the one who died on that cross for you and me. A good friend of mine who you all know really well probably, every morning he and his wife sit down with their two sons and they take their hands at the breakfast table of their two boys and they mark with a little Sharpie or a pen a small cross on the top of the boy's hands. And they speak a word of blessing over each other as they do that. And then the boys head off to their day. And they do it to remind those boys that they are marked by Jesus, the one to whom that cross belongs. They are marked by Jesus. And that everywhere they go, everything they touch, that they are bearing Jesus into the world with them. But it's not only that, it's also a defensive strategy. Because here's what my friend knows. He knows that his boys and he and his wife are going to walk out into the world and that they're going to walk into a world full of other symbols. Symbols that, like the cross, are trying to point to something beyond themselves. Whereas the cross points us to Jesus Christ, whereas it focuses us on Jesus, whereas it draws us to worship Jesus. We walk into the world that is filled with other symbols that are drawing our focus our attention, and even our worship. Don't think, you know, that Christians are the only ones who know how powerful symbols are. The rest of the world is aware that a symbol can grab hold of you, redirect your focus, and even your worship. Case in point, consider Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we're in our third week in a series in the book of Daniel, and King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon starts Chapter three of Daniel with a mighty symbol, the construction of a statue. Let's pick up in Daniel three, starting in verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue. It was 90 feet high and nine feet wide. Verse two, King Nebuchadnezzar then ordered the chief administrators, ministers, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to assemble and come for the dedication of the statue that he had set up. Verse four, and the herald proclaimed loudly, peoples, nations, languages, this is what you must do. You must bow down and worship this gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And anyone who will not bow down and worship will be immediately thrown 
into a furnace of flaming fire. What's going on here? You know, Nebuchadnezzar wants to bridge a really critical gap. You got to recognize that in this moment, Nebuchadnezzar is the most respected, well-known, and honored person in the entire world. But he wants to bridge the gap between respect and reverence. You know, he wants to move his people from acknowledging him, from honoring him, to worshiping him. And in his mind, the best tool for the job is a symbol. In this case, it's a statue, a golden statue. Now think about that for a second. He wants to move the world around him from respect to reverence, okay? From attention to worship. And the tool that he uses to do that is a statue. Now don't think for a moment that just because a statue doesn't move or doesn't talk that it doesn't have any power. Apparently, and Nebuchadnezzar knew this, apparently statues like other symbols have the power to redirect the human heart to reorient our lives of worship. Uh, To explain what I mean, let's consider another type of art. So a statue would be one kind or one kind of symbol type of art. Let's consider another, how about music, okay? So anybody who knows Brescian Hatcher, our worship minister, knows that this guy loves music. I can promise you, I listen to him because we share it off this wall. I listen to him jamming out all day long Every day, this guy loves music. Now, what you may not know about Brescian is that he has a really discerning taste in music. Brescian will not listen to an album or a song if the lyrics don't give glory to God. Like, it's just a line in the sand for him. It doesn't matter how popular that artist is, how incredible they are as a musician. If you come up to Brescian, you say, hey, have you heard the newest album from so-and-so? Brescian will probably tell you, nope, and I'm not going to. (laughs) because he will not listen to any songs that don't give glory to God. And it's not because Brescian's a holy roller or a Puritan, it's because he knows that music has power, that music has the ability to open up our hearts, to lay us bare and to orient our lives of worship. You know, that's why we worship together as a church. You don't just come to hear somebody talk, you come to sing first because singing opens our hearts and directs them towards God, towards reverence of God. It's why when a few months ago we had to move to virtual services because of the pandemic, we didn't just send out a sermon, right? We sent out worship as well. And I know it's different to sing in your home, but the reason's really simple. We're not trying to change your mind. We're trying to open your heart so that God's glory and grace might do something inside of you. And music has that capacity. But on the flip side, the music we listen to every day, every time we turn on the radio has that same power. And I think most of us can attest to the way that music will infiltrate our lives and begin sometimes without us even knowing it to redirect our hearts, to to redirect even our worship, not only our focus and attention. And so like songs and other symbols, statues are a piece of art that that have that kind of power. They, they get at the heart and they always have. And Nebuchadnezzar knows this. He knew exactly what he's doing. There's something about a statue of someone. 
No, there's something about a stone that is carved and takes shape into a form of someone that has this power over us, right? It can just change our hearts and it redirects our hearts sometimes without us even realizing it. And the problem is that when that happens, our hearts become vulnerable, not only distracted. Now, I want you to think about that in the context of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Paul tells the Corinthian church after he had moved on from Corinth, he writes him a letter and he tells him this. He said, I had made up my mind not to think about anything while I was with you except Jesus Christ and to preach him as crucified. Now, that's a well-known verse. You've probably heard that before, but it helps to remember the context because Corinth was this incredible city but it had 26, 26 holy sites in that city. We're not talking about holy sites dedicated to the God most high. We're talking about holy sites dedicated to all kinds of gods, all kinds of values. And at each one of those 26 holy sites, there was a different statue, sometimes multiple statues, calling to Paul's attention. Paul couldn't walk through the city of Corinth without seeing all kinds of symbols that were trying to grab his attention and change his heart of worship. It'd be like walking into um, Times Square and just being bombarded with all the symbols and signs all around you trying to get you to buy things and love things and admire different things. That's how it was for Paul in Corinth. He's walking through Corinth and he says in 1 Corinthians 8, in Corinth there are many gods and many lords. And Paul says that in that scenario, he had to get a grip on his mind and a grip on his heart. He had to focus on Jesus and to do that, he says he focused on the cross. Now, Paul is not the first person to wage this kind of war of the heart and mind in a world with competing symbols, competing for our attention and our worship. He's not the first to do that. And he's also not the last, which we'll come back to in a second. But long before Paul, there were these three guys, and we know those guys as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, those were not their names their Jewish mamas gave them. Those are the names that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon gives to them when he brings them from their home in Israel and brings them to Babylon into exile. And when he brings them there, he begins to try to change their identity in subtle ways. So he tries to get them to eat his food, to read his books, to go by his names. And then in chapter three, he raises this statue and he tries to get these three guys to worship his God. Remember, that's what a statue is for. It's to move you from respecting something or honoring something or remembering something into worshiping that thing. And even though these three guys know that they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace if they don't worship this statue, listen to what they tell Nebuchadnezzar. This is Daniel 3 verse 17. If our God, the one we serve, the one we serve, is able to rescue us from the furnace of flaming fire and from your power, your majesty, then let him rescue us. But if he doesn't, know this for certain, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Okay, what I love about these guys is that at the most critical moment in their lives, when the most is at stake in their lives, they are still focused on one God. 
they still know, as they say, the one they serve. There's no doubt in their mind. There's no hesitation. It's so clear to them in this most critical moment in their life that there's only one God that they serve. I shared with you a few weeks ago that I had picked up the book by Kent and Amber Brantley, who were American missionaries serving in Africa when Kent contracted Ebola in 2014. Many of you remember that story. And there's this really powerful moment in that story just after Kent learns that he is sick from Ebola. He's already terribly sick at this point, but doctors confirm it's Ebola. And shortly after that, he gets a call from an old mentor, actually somebody you all know, Randy Harris. And Randy asks Kent if there's anything Kent wants to tell his church back home in the States. And this is what he said. He said, I told Randy, tell them, thank you for praying for me. And that I just want God to be glorified in my life or in my death. I keep thinking about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego facing death in the fiery furnace They told the king they knew their God could deliver them, but even if he didn't, they would still be faithful to him and would not bow down to the king's idol. I know that God can save me. I know he can. But even if he doesn't, I don't want to deny him. I want to be faithful. I mean, that kind of singular focus, reverence, love for God, no matter what you're facing in your life, isn't that what you want? I mean, don't you want to be like these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who Brantley thinks of in his most critical hour? These three guys who are unwilling to take their focus off of God. I mean, they are so squarely focused on God in this moment that nothing can shake them, not even a fiery furnace. I mean, don't you want to be like that? And you're probably wondering, well, how how do I become that kind of person? And and the clue is actually in their answer. If you go back to what they say in chapter chapter three, verse 17 and 18, they say, if our God, the one we serve, is able to rescue us from the furnace of flaming fire and from your power, your majesty, then let him rescue us. But if he doesn't know this for certain, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Okay, this is how they did it. This is how they prepared themselves for that moment. And this is how they stayed focused on God in that moment. And that is that they guarded their worship. That they guarded their worship in every day before this moment. And when this moment arrives, it made sense to just keep doing the same thing, guarding their worship. And it's because they guarded their worship that they knew the one they served because he was the only one that they worship. Now, don't think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or even Paul, are the last ones who've had to deal with this challenge of navigating a world where there are all kinds of symbols pointing to values and principles and ideals and people and trying to get us to give our hearts to those things. Don't think that these are the last guys who had to deal with this. This has always been a challenge for Christians. I'm going to kind of hear a cool story. When Christians, when Christianity was legalized in the Roman Empire, one of the things that Christians began to do was to go around the Roman Empire tearing down statues. In fact, Christians became known as the people who move that which should not be moved. That's from Marinus of Samaria. The people who move that which should not be moved. I love that title for Christians. What Christians were doing is something that I heard someone talk about recently. They were taking an inventory of their symbolic world. 
taking an inventory of their symbolic world. And what he meant by that was kind of like Brecian does with his songs, that were going out into the world and paying attention to all the symbols around them that were trying to draw their attention, trying to draw their focus, and even trying to redirect their worship. And they recognize that those things, sometimes they're statues, sometimes they're other symbols, have the power to tweak and adjust our worship without us even knowing it. And so they began to, to tear them down. And the statues they couldn't tear down, they did this too. This is a, you're not going to believe this. This is, was the head of a life-size statue of the goddess Aphrodite. This was on the slopes of the Acropolis in Athens. And look at her forehead. Can you tell what that is on her forehead? It's a cross carved into Aphrodite's face by a Christian to blind her with the power of the cross. <laughs> okay, talk about a powerful representation of the symbols that Christians are willing to focus on because they point to Jesus Christ and what all other symbols mean in comparison, right? They're gonna blind Aphrodite with the power of the cross. I love that. So I think this story of Nebuchadnezzar's giant statue should, should cause us to be cautious, attentive. It should make us pay attention. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think we need to take inventory of our symbolic worlds too of the songs, of the statues, of the other symbols that are all around us all the time. Maybe it's a bumper sticker on my car. The symbols that are all around us that are trying to um, redirect our worship, trying to draw our attention, trying to determine our identity. Even the, even the good ones, even the well-intentioned ones have this power of altering our focus, placing it on things that are not Christ. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are willing to be burned to death because they believe that this was part of what it meant to be God's people. Okay, God is after my worship all the time. God doesn't just want my worship on Sunday morning. God wants my worship in every space I am and every place that I go, every minute of my day. And so to give God worship all the time, I've got to guard against worshiping anything else. And that's just part of what it means to be one of God's people. Which brings us back to the cross. I mentioned in the last two sermons that the book of Daniel points to Jesus. Well, in Daniel chapter two, before Nebuchadnezzar ever lifts this statue, he has a dream about a statue. That statue comes crashing down as a stone crushes it. And we read about Daniel coming to interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two. And he tells him this, he says, the God of heaven will raise up an everlasting kingdom It'll shatter other kingdoms like that stone and it'll put an end to all of them. It'll stand firm forever. And I think when I hear that, what comes to mind for me is Jesus, who Matthew tells us is the chief cornerstone. And in fact, Matthew goes on to say that upon this cornerstone, all others will be crushed. All other kingdoms and empires will be crushed as this king becomes not only cornerstone of all, but king and Lord of all. And all that to say is that the most fundamental thing that Christians believe, and we talked about this last week, the most fundamental thing that Christians believe is that Jesus Christ is King and Lord of all right now. But what that means for us as people who belong to the kingdom of that King 
is that we don't worship other kings. We don't worship other things. We don't worship other people. We don't worship other places. We don't worship other ideas, other values, other movements. We worship one, and that is Jesus Christ, the King. And, it, and when we think about the, the symbols in our lives that draw us towards Jesus versus the symbols that draw us elsewhere, I think that we settle on if there's a symbol we treasure, if there's a symbol that Christians care about, it's this one right here. It's the cross. I was in China a few years ago as we were preparing to send missionaries there who are there now. And we're thankful for their tremendous work there. And I was with John Chen. Many of you remember John Chen, amazing man who we lost too soon. And he, he helped us to launch that mission in China. And we were walking down one of the busy streets in China. And he began to tell us about the Chinese government's systematic removal of crosses from all public spaces in China and from all of the state-sanctioned churches. In fact, there were over 400 crosses that had been removed by 2015, and many of the churches on which those crosses stood on top, many of the churches themselves were demolished. And after China did this, they sent a 36-page directive to the state-sanctioned church outlining if they wanted to show a cross, how they could do it. And here were the rules. The cross had to be on the facade of the building, not above the building. It had to blend in with the building. It had to be the same color as the rest of the building, and it had to be incredibly small. Why? It's because even the Chinese government knows that symbols have a lot of power. And they're scared because a symbol like this one has the power to change the worship of a whole empire. The cross of Jesus Christ has that kind of power. And so they're tearing them down frantically. Like Paul and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, we come from a long line of people who have, have done the difficult work of discerning in the places where we live and inhabit in our homes, in our workplaces, in our spheres of influence, of discerning, you know, what symbols here have value and which ones don't? Which symbols point me to Jesus and which ones don't? Which things are unmovable and which things should be moved? And in all of that, what Christians hold tightly to is the cross. We worship Christ and that is it. And the Bible ends in Revelation 4 with this vision of a worship scene. And there in this worship scene are all kinds of people and creatures who are worshiping God. And among those are 24 elders. They're the kind of people in this, in this life who we would make statues of. They're people who are accomplished, who've accomplished great and mighty things, who have crowns on their head. But watch what happens in Revelation 4, starting in verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Who's worthy of our worship? It's only one. It's Jesus Christ. Who is worthy of our honor and glory and praise? It's only one. It's Jesus, as we see in Revelation 5, who is the Lamb of God who comes to sit upon this throne. That's the only one who is worthy of our worship. And what makes Christians different from the world around us is that while, whereas the rest of the world is struggling 
to identify what deserves their worship. Christians know there's only one. It's Jesus. And we're the ones who worship him right now. We're the ones who do on earth what we will do forever eternally. And that is lay our crowns down at the feet of the one who deserves our worship.